This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and I'm here today on the 3D Pod together with Maxwell Bogue. Hey, everyone. And uh, together we're joined with two guests. And one of them is uh, uh, John Barnes, uh, uh, who's returned to us, uh, who was here earlier. And John is a really experienced 3D printing consultant with uh, many years of experience, in, especially in aviation, especially in metals, working on lens and powder bed fusion and getting these kind of parts uh, onto aircraft. And uh, Jennifer Coyne is here as well. And she is the additive manufacturing lever at uh, Lab Tech Corporation. And she's in charge of all the, the, the additive projects at the WabTech. And WabTech is a, well, it's a, very, it's a very large company. It's one of those very large companies you've probably never heard of uh, with over 18,000 employees. And uh, we're going to talk to them today a little bit about additive and how they use additive and uh, uh, the future in, in, in their business. So, uh, yeah, welcome, uh, welcome again, John. Thank you. Good to hear from you again. Uh, and welcome again also, Jennifer. Thanks. Hi. Um, so first, Jennifer, we'll, we'll tell us a little bit about the Wabtech Corporation, because I think it's not, you don't really sell consumer products and stuff, so maybe a lot of people haven't heard of you. Yeah, I think you said it well, a really big company that maybe not a lot of people are familiar with, but I guarantee you've had some sort of practical experience with us in the past. So we are a um, global company headquartered in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but we're located in over 50 countries, a little over $8 billion company. And our focus is in the, the rail space. So that could be the freight trains that you may see carrying coal or intermodal like goods across the country in North America mostly, but also around the world. Or in Europe, we are a tier one supplier to vehicle builders. So think like major components on a metro or um, passenger rail, mostly in uh, the transit sector over in Europe. And then goods and services and digital solutions around those product lines. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's really interesting to us because we've already had a conversation with uh, Stephanie Biggrader of Mobility Goes Additive, and she's from Deutsche Bahn. So you're actually our second rail, <laughs> rail industry person we've had on here. So that I think is a very good uh, sign. And what do you guys use additive for internally? Yeah, so we use it for different things. Um, depending on the segment of the business, we use it for product differentiation for things like our large diesel engines, um, performance or reliability improvements uh, in, in those components or in those product lines. And then uh, spare parts is mostly the focus on the transit side. So uh, you probably, in your podcast with Stephanie, heard the, the story around spare parts and transit. So we uh, are the owners of a lot of those spare part designs. So that's also something that we focus on. And that's always something that we, we keeps coming back for us where, okay, you technically own designs, you have design rights or, or different designs on these parts. Like, uh, you know, how comfortable are you guys with the, the idea that I would just like, um, let's say I'm an operator, let's say I'm a uh, local city metro. So how comfortable are you guys with the idea of that I'm going to print my own spare parts and things like that? I mean, it's not ideal financially for us, obviously. <laughs> but, very honest. Yeah, I mean, that's the first thing from a business perspective, right? But more than that, I think there's a lot of uh, complexity that goes into the design and qualification of those spare parts that maybe a vehicle builder or maintainer or operator 
wouldn't be aware of. So that's why I think we are really well poised to serve the spare parts market because we understand the norms, the qualifications, the original design intent and, and requirements around making those spare parts. And we can produce something 3D printed that also meets those same requirements. Sorry, I assume there's a lot of testing that also goes into all of this to verify that it, it's, you know, like, because the, the Deutsche Bahn rep mentioned how they're agnostic on technology and whatnot, that they're just more about farming it out to people to make the parts. Um, but are you guys actually, you're, you're actually manufacturing the parts, right? We do, yeah. So my, within my team, we have design capability and also um, actual equipment that we manufacture the majority of what we do in-house. We do obviously work with key suppliers as well, but uh, we have insourced a lot of that, that technology and expertise, mostly to work on some of our product differentiated parts more than the spare parts necessarily. But um, yeah, so we found it advantageous to have in-house for some key projects and key developments. Yeah, because what we've, we, oh, sorry. Sorry, I was just going to jump in there, Yoris. I think one yeah. of the things, and you, you kind of talked about this in the past, especially on PPE, which is, you know, we're not, we're not just, you're not just making shapes with these parts. So people maybe dismiss it because it's a plastic part, but you know, flame smoke and toxicity is critically important to these parts. So, mm -hmm. you know, should you have a fire on board, you don't want this 3D printed plastic part, you know, causing uh, some sort of respiratory damage because it doesn't have the same properties as the incumbent part had. So I, I, people just need to appreciate that, you know, a lot goes into material selection and, and, and things like that before they wind up with the traveling public. Yeah, yeah no, I hope so. And I think, I think also uniquely, I mean, the, the parts from rail are, are the rated for very long service life, like 20, 30 years um, and under a lot of adverse conditions and stuff like that. So, so what technologies are you guys using at WebTech? Um, yeah, good point uh, on both ends there. So with the polymer sides, we use um, multi-jet fusion by HP and also a lot of, of various FDM products. And um, those are, we use them for prototyping, but then also the, the HP for some of our series production. And then on the metal side, laser powder bed fusion and binder jet, we've found success in both of those technologies. Yeah. And, and binder jet, what kind of parts are you using that for? So I'd say it's still pretty um, early on in that development phase. So that the technology is great. It's fast. It's, uh, it's simple for the most part, but it's still got some maturing to do. It's got some growing up to do. So we're working on just developing mostly simple parts and um, just trying to center them well, print them well, center them well, and figure out that just the process that we need to bring those parts through to, to get what we, what the design intent is at the end. So still developing, but mostly a little bit like casting replacements with some design for additive features in them. Are any of those parts in the field yet? You say, does, that's why, because you say you're still testing it on some level, but. We have at least one or two on assets, um, but mm -hmm. not broadly. Okay. And, and, and I was just wondering, like, so where do you see, because there's two very different metal technologies. Like, there's a lot of hype about uh, a binder jet. Um, and, and where do you see the area where you would, like, be inclined to use binder jet and not use powder bed fusion? Is there, like, is there, 
Or are you just interested in using multiple technologies? Is there really an application area where you think the binder jet will shine? Yeah, we're, we're very hopeful. So our freight side of our business is pretty heavy in like uh, low alloy steels and uh, mm -hmm. relatively cheap materials, uh, but durable and heavy. So if you think about additive in its traditional use cases, that doesn't sound like additive, durable and heavy, right? Well, maybe durable, but not heavy um, right. or, or bulky or big. So we are investing in binder jet technology um, for cost reasons. Mostly we see that eventually, it, even if not now, the cost point will be lower. And um, also for higher quantities, it's inherently faster, at least on the printing side. Obviously the, the process in and of itself, you know, you gotta go through sintering as well. So maybe the turnaround time isn't necessarily faster, but uh, you can produce higher quantities with a similar amount of equipment. So we're hoping on some of our like higher uh, volume, um, maybe less intricate designs that BinderJet will be a better fit. Because I, I would assume that part size is going to be a bit of an issue for you on, on a lot of your applications or not? Yeah, absolutely. So the actual bed size, similar to a lot of your laser powder bed fusion um, machines, but sintering large binder jetting parts is tough. We've done it and done it relatively successfully, but to do that repeatedly, uh, it just takes process development. So, um, and also you're dealing with the shrinkage, right? So you have to account for that in your part size. No, oh, that's, that's the, the bugbear. Have you, but, and the weird thing is nobody ever looks at like casting or like SLA plus casting, because that, for these large kind of parts, would be a really nice way to do it. Have you guys explored that as a technology or not really? Yeah, funny enough, I was just talking through that with one of uh, the guys on my team an hour ago. Yeah, we, we definitely talk about that. It's it, it gets a little complicated because you have the complexity of um, like a, a building out that full supply chain uh, <laughs> because you, you need to be connected with your printing and your foundry and your your whole <laughs> system there and that for us at least means we're crossing several business segments which you know big corporate america gets gets hazy but it's possible and i think a great solution mm -hmm. but you've yeah, also been using the sand binder jetting to make cast parts so your web tech does that today yeah we do not necessarily within my team but absolutely as a company we do okay yeah because that, that kind of form of casting is really interesting as well and and what do you are you are you and why are you doing this i mean okay we all know the business drivers out of production parts and we all know the kind of headlines but what made you guys as a company say hey this is something we want to invest in i think the the real story is uh, my background is um, Wabtech is a business that has formed from several different mergers and acquisitions. One of the most recent being the GE Transportation and Wabtech merger back in 2018. And that's where I came from. So coming from GE, um, everyone speaks additive. Everyone knows additive. It's almost uh, forced upon you at the highest level. So um, back in 2017, we were said, or we were told as a business, you gotta go figure out, um, one, is this worth investing in? And two, how much and, and how, what's the strategy? So that's when I got involved with this and um, started working out that strategy, hiring the team, et cetera. But at first we had to answer that question of like, does this make sense at this time and for our business? And, and after looking pretty hard at the 
industry as a whole and where it was in its maturity and also our applications of it, um, it, it made sense to at the time. And that's when we started to invest in like some of the, lo I'll call it lower cost, high production technologies like BinderJet. Um, and, and we started there, the steels on laser powder bed fusion um, and, and looked at things like heat exchangers for our engines and our engine systems and, and some um, in-cylinder technologies that would really differentiate us, which you don't think about necessarily unless you live in the engine world and you understand that. But there's definitely some differentiated products that are only capable or only possible through additive. And then when we merged with Wabtech, they did not have a 3D printing or additive group and we became that group for the, the full company. And then we started to explore the transit solution space and that looks very different than our freight side and they care about light weighting and we make things that are safety critical and do care about like uh, smoke and toxicity like John mentioned. So the space looks totally different and it made us have a little broader lens around our investment choices. Um, but at the same time, we're still finding those differentiated products on the original equipment side that um, are valuable for our customers, either in performance or reliability, et cetera. And then we're, we're also trying to tackle the spare parts solutions because our customers need those. Mm -hmm. and, and is there a lot of enthusiasm in, in, in the company for doing this? Is it like, is it gung-ho? Because I'm thinking like every time we talk to aviation people, like John, it's always this weight saving thing. and Everybody's really enthusiastic. That's less of a concern on trains and stuff. And do you, do you notice that people are like maybe less enthusiastic about this or, or is, it, is it a very gung-ho thing to, to, to keep doing this? It depends on the business. <laughs> I have <laughs> talked to some people that could, you know, are wondering what in the world we're doing here. <laughs> I talked to a lot of people who just can't wait to, um, you know, transform their product lines through, through additive and I think it depends on the customer need, the product need. And you mentioned light weighting. Yeah, for, for freight that doesn't matter. In fact, we add weight to locomotives for, for traction. And just like you would put a, a big sand ba um, bag of sand in the back of your car if you live in the north anywhere in the winter. Mm -hmm. It's the same with locomotives. You, you throw metal in them so that they can pull harder for traction. However, on the transit side, we actually have very strict uh, weight requirements. And that's a metric that we look at every day and actually pay penalties if we're over. So they do care about lightweighting. And so when we can bring solutions to transit that are lightweight, it's direct energy savings and emission savings or carbon savings, which they also measure. And you did kind of allude to you guys thinking about this from the design thing, because like usually we had a whole conversation with John about this. Usually like we, we tell people well, you need to, in the beginning of the product line, the design phase, you would need to do additive. And with spare parts, you're doing it at the very, very end. Are you also thinking about new trains using additive components and things like that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, it's no surprise making a business case out of spare parts. It's tough. You do it to support your customers, but to validate a low uh, quantity of parts is uh, is financially difficult, <laughs> and like you said, it's uh, it's difficult in the design cycle and printing cycle too because you're looking at mostly existing geometries that can't change too much. So yeah, we we have trouble with that, but again, like I said, we do that because sometimes it do, it does make sense, and when it doesn't, we find other solutions uh, such as like rapid cast, etc. Uh, but 
the original equipment side, that's where we find, that's where we've got a lot of strategic um, projects going on right now that we should be launching into series production in the coming few years here that we'll see more on the differentiating our product lines and doing that through original equipment. Okay. That'd be, that'd be very exciting. And, and so for John, like John, how enthusiastic are you about rail specifically coming from aviation and stuff? Do you see a lot of the future there for 3d printing? I do. I mean, I, I, you know, we, it's, it's interesting, you know, you've talked to Stephanie Brigida and, you know, and, and meeting her and talking to, you know, the general conditions. It's, I think it's part and parcel to me, which is additives disruptive and how it affects your business. It really is limited by how you think about the process. And, you know, one of the things that, that I liked about meeting Jen is she comes at it with more of a systems engineer perspective. And so, you know, even on aviation, we talk about being weight critical, but the F-16 gained a thousand pounds every year it's been in service. You know, Humvees, uh, you know, and, and military Jeeps, weight is still an issue because you know everything doesn't stay with the equipment that came you know they continually provide new equipment to put on these vehicles so even if we say that weight isn't is is not critical it it usually is in terms of being able to add other capability at some point and and there are technical things like fatigue that come into play and you know and we did some training with with jen's team and one of the points that we made was you know it it may need to be heavy, but, you know, designing it to be lightweight actually makes it cheaper to make an additive. And so you may, may decide to put a pound, you know, a bag of sand in the locomotive right. to, to counteract it. Well, that's easy. You know, and a bag of sand is probably cheaper than, you know, six tons of, of steel. But um, <laughs> I, you know, I grew up loving trains. So that was naturally my, before I understood planes, the trains were kind of my first love. So I, I think Jen's kind of touched on a few things, which is, you know, I love the process economics side of things and making the business cases. And so sometimes it is schedule. Sometimes it's supporting your customer. Sometimes it's, you know, things that can't move without critical parts. And then sometimes it's weight and sometimes it's cost. Sometimes it's all three. And, and that's where people kind of have to appreciate what, what additive can do. And importantly, back to this other discussion around binder jetting, you know, what it, what it does well and that it is sufficiently diverse that there's different processes and they have their own design constraints. You know, we're, uh, you know, looking at this binder jetting thing being, you know, quote unquote, a hundred times faster, you know, it's not a hundred times faster at making a part. And, and, but the question is, is it any cheaper? And then the question of that is why you're trying to make the same part with powder bed that you're trying to make with binder jetting. Cause they, they generally, skewed towards different extremes in my opinion but you know i think to answer your question i i don't think that additive has any limitations other than you know being able to make a, a business value proposition around it yeah well i think i think as well i think to me binder jet has a very specific solution set you know 500 to you know ten thousand parts uh, that are like five to 10 centimeters in stainless steel, you know, or something like that, where, you know, for some reason the post-processing is cheap as well or something like that. For me, there's a very definitive kind of, um, kind of area where, where binder jet makes sense before you run into intrinsic problems with like meter long parts where they're going to bend and all this other stuff. 
and just and 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 also after you're already going to run into problems with parts larger than 30 40 centimeters with uh, uh with sintering them so i think you know there, there just seems to be a very and it, and it always needs to be in my opinion series and like jennifer said you know simple simple parts uh, that's so i think there's a really specific solution set and i'm not sure if everyone can find it but yeah well, and I, I, the only thing I would add to that is, is that I think what you're highlighting is the skill set to deploy additive sits with people who know how to make parts. And, and you know, we see a lot of companies who are like, oh, it's this magic box and you push the button and the part comes out. Well, that's, yeah. not, that's not what happens here. You know, so if you're not making parts today, you know, this technology you know, may not be inviting you to become a parts manufacturer. <laughs> uh, you know, the requirements are still really important and, and being able to combine it with downstream mm -hmm. process uh, is critical to achieving success. And that's, you know, we always talk about, you know, designing for additive and, you know, in that mm -hmm. survey we took only a third of the audience, you know, actually defines it as a finished product. So if you don't mm -hmm. design, if your DFAM process doesn't include delivering the final product, you know, it's it's really not terribly mm -hmm. helpful on the transportation specifically in the train side since we're we're largely talking about that how long do you guys think it will be before say 10 percent of uh, a new train is made from additive you think it's like a five or a 10 year horizon for something of that nature i know predicting the future is always dubious but <laughs> Is that percent by mass <laughs> or quantity? <laughs> I'll go quantity Ooh. of part. I, you, you choose. Dealers. Quantity, of course, of course. Quantity. Yeah, quantity. We never get to mass, so we could talk quantity. Yeah, exactly. Well, quantity is easier to achieve because you could just put 10 cup holders in every train and then you're there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that might be entitlement, honestly. So when do we get to entitlement? Oof. That could be a decade from now. <laughs> mm. So it, it depends on the on the economics of it and how that evolves over time. Do machine prices, material prices come down as volume goes up? I, I don't know. I can't predict that for sure. Um, and then there's also the adoption side. You know, John and I got to know each other uh, through, through training. He came on site and trained a group of engineers at my business early on in our journey here. But without that, uh, workforce that understands design for additive and just starts building it in in the first place it's like change management is tough you know so doing it at right. the end is a lot harder uh, <laughs> uh, and and that's interesting i think i think also that it is change management i keep, I keep coming back to people saying hey 3d printing adopting 3d printing is change management in large organizations at the moment and so what do you guys so a lot of people have one competence center or one kind of area are you guys, you know, how are you using this to spread the technology through the rest of the group? Are you just going to say, hey, these are our 10 3D printing guys and that's it? Or are you having, you know, are you going to have more multiple manufacturing locations? What's your thinking of, of trying to you know, kind of like seed this through the rest of the company? Yeah, right. So, I mean, someday I want my team to grow, or sorry, shrink, and uh, everyone else to just know how to use and design for additive and, and that would be an ideal situation. However, in the beginning, not a lot of people know how to do that. So the way we're structured today is we do have a core group, which I lead, and, um, but we, we sit more in like the central organization. So we serve anybody in, within the web tech business. 
uh, through, you know, consulting of design services, or sometimes if they don't even know how or have that competency, we design for them. So it's, it, we kind of offer like any level of assistance and we also print as well. So we have like that process manufacturing and the capability within the group too. But I mean, ideally that sort of, we, we train and we help others to insource it on their own. And we do have good examples of that. Like uh, we have a great hard example on our transit side that my team had nothing to do with. And I loved it. I, I love that because <laughs> they brought it to us complete. And I looked at it and thought, I wouldn't change a thing. It's a beautiful, well-designed part that nests well, completely unsupported um, or self-supported. It's like, it's just a, it's a, a am part of beauty. And um, my team had nothing to do with it. So that's the, where I'd love <laughs> to get to, but that takes training and a lot of like success stories. So right now we're focused on getting those success stories out there. Yeah. I think uh, this is like, we probably want to, uh, one thing that has worked really well for me in the past in this same kind of scenario is to make like a table of broken parts. So just like at the Ferrari and to make like a table of all the parts that didn't work and also a table of all the parts that worked with the prices on it. Like this is a combustion <laughs> part, it's 316, it costs us 400 bucks and it costs us 800 if we did it as a service. And also the important thing is to show the broken stuff like, Hey, this didn't work because you couldn't get the wall thickness. This didn't work because uh, whatever, this thing was three grand and it was never worked, you know? And that really makes this real because a lot of people, the, their frame of reference is still the Yoda heads, you know, and to <laughs> right. show them that somebody's doing a combustion chamber, a heat exchanger, or to show them that somebody did like, like stupid stuff, like, doorknobs or you know yeah. a, a doorknob might actually inspire someone to do like oh my god we need doorknobs you know that kind of thing what are you um, funny you mentioned doorknobs i mean we ran a uh, a challenge when i was uh with the csiro and uh we actually had a uh clever student put together a doorknob which worked by squeezing it because it could be 3d printed rather than turning it or with the concept of people yeah. who might have difficulty you know turning things but they could yeah. squeeze things. And so, nice. um, you know, it, I, I think it falls into that. Ca I completely agree on the Yoda head thing. And, you know, you right. can make trivial things constantly. It just looks like a trivial process. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it's a similar story of there's no uninteresting things, just un uninterested people. So if you reimagine what a doorknob, you know, is yeah. meant to do, which is what we love about going back to requirements, you know, yeah. and, 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 and it was funny, we, we were in, in Jen's team, we were talking to like some really senior principal engineers. And, you know, I remember one of the conversations with the guy was, well, we make, you know, large steel stuff. And I said, okay, so you're telling me it's a requirement to, to use, you know, large steel stuff. And he's like, yeah. So I said, your customer tells you in the specification that you make it large and out of steel. And he's like, well, no. And I was like, all right, so let's, what does it have to do? You know, and he's like, all right, I, I, I see where you're going. I, you know, I just keep banging on it. I mean, what, what, what's the requirement for what that thing's got to do? And then, you know, there's, there's always the fun part and, and imagining what a crazy design might look like. And then, you know, usually you have to pair it back to, let people absorb it and move on but yoda heads just oh, yeah, yeah. yoda heads are man they're the best <laughs> john how do you work with a large company like WebTech? i mean do you just come in for training and you just like find more projects or what's your what's your way of working with a company of this size there is no one answer i mean i think you know it took 
just kind of sit, sitting down, you know, with Jen and, and basically just having a conversation around, you know, what, what problems was she experiencing? And I think, uh, you know, one of the things that's interesting about Jen is, you know, she's not somebody who necessarily was looking for an additive journey in her career, but, you know, it came to her. And, and it's also one of the things I like about the story with, with WabTech, you know, this isn't like another aviation story. This is heavy transportation. And, and it tell, that's what gives me hope about additive, because if we can make the business case with trains and heavy transportation, you know, then, then that's, that's another data point of success. Mm-hmm. So it was really just, uh, you know, we, we did the training, um, and, and I was like to joke with her. She was like super skeptical about me and my sketchy operation, but, you know, I think we, we just took the opportunity one day to sit down and just have a conversation and, you know, kind of talk through what problems that did she see? What you know, and, and, and I think part of it is I just love the sort of the organizational psychology piece, you know, trying to drive change in a large organization is not easy. And I particularly like her approach, you know, around the systems engineer, uh, systems engineering. That was something that we used, employed a lot, you know, within aerospace. And, you know, because it's, it's sort of a necessary approach because of the multidisciplinary nature of additive, you know, and if you, all you ever have is a core group of people, you know, so that story that Jen told where, where another group designed it, that is a strong success story. As far as I'm concerned, if I were Jen's boss, you know, that means that she's done her job because if it means driving it back to the same 12 people, you know, the conversations we usually hear about that is, you know, the same 12 people then have the same conversation every day, which is, well, it's a layer by layer process, you know, where you add material where you need it and blah, 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 blah. You know, so they just end up having that conversation every day for 52 weeks. Uh, you know, it's much more successful to permeate it into the organization. It's also a lot harder. And, you know, we're seeing other organizations uh, like WabTech, Baker Hughes being one of them, um, who are trying to convert that core center of excellence team uh, and deploy the know-how into the organization. And, you know, they may not try to deploy 100% of the know-how, you know, so not the printing and the design and the materials and the specs, et cetera. They may keep some of that for themselves, like controlling over the specifications, but the designing piece has to permeate into the organization. And, you know, we, we all know if you don't design for the process, you just, you never, you know, you'd be lucky to meet your requirements. Yeah. I always tell uh, customers to go do uh, not just one center, a competence center, but just do multiple initiatives because they're going to hire people like Jennifer. <laughs> so yes. if, if you've proven <laughs> that you average industrial company can industrialize additive manufacturing in a regulated uh, application for products and parts, then other people are just going to steal people like Jennifer like crazy. So I said, look, you don't, you can't depend on one person. <laughs> Somebody's going to hire away. <laughs> so I think that's going to, that's going to happen. They're going to be like the application development guys of the future. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about neighborhood 91 because it is not sure. the next uh, diehard movie. It'll be far too outlandish to make titanium powder in an airport. 
<laughs> or to have an airport. Well, you and I may be the only ones old enough to remember Nakatomi uh, Plaza, but uh, I know <laughs> I, I, I watched that one. <laughs> That's the best um, Christmas movie. That is the best. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Yippee ki yay! Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know the the Pittsburgh airport actually is almost eight thousand acres uh, of land and. Uh, you know, a peculiarity of, of airports in the United States is the FAA doesn't allow them to sell their land. And so they look for uh, revenue and the ability to lease that land. And so Neighborhood 91 popped up as an idea with the airport here in Pittsburgh uh, as an innovation campus. And so most people would know, like Dick Sporting Goods built their headquarters on on the, the ground of the Pittsburgh airport. Uh, grant, granted, you know, 8,000 acres is a lot of there's a lot of space. Um, so similarly, the neighbor 91 campus is also going to be located on that 8,000 acres. It's going to be 200 of it. And, you know, what we've done is, is put a concept around a, a uh, supply chain ecosystem, uh, primarily to solve a business problem or, or an economics problem. And, you know, along the way has been some investments in infrastructure, uh, you know, namely being uh, argon recapture and recycling. Uh, mm-hmm. which is a critical cost driver in things like titanium powder production and, and powder production in general, but is then also used in the, the 3D printers, is then also used in heat treating. You know, so it's fairly pervasive uh, in the value chain of, of making an additive part. Uh, so while, uh, you know, we, we do, we, do have, we, we just had a conversation with Department of Family and Security, you know, making them aware of what we're up to and them making us aware of what our obligations are as best they can tell us at this point. But our, our, the tone of those conversations with them are no surprises and, and, and they reciprocate. So, uh, while, uh, while we're on airport grounds, I don't know that, uh, I don't know <laughs> about the John McClain scenario, uh, playing out, <laughs> but, um, at least I like not to think about it. However, you know, we do. But I guess you had a couple of scenes with the Dick Sporting Goods as well. That would be good. With like baseball <laughs> yeah, you know, you can <laughs> imagine good, yeah. going through there and uh, using hockey pucks and hockey yeah. sticks. And, and I can print the gun at the airport, you know? That's, I don't even know. So. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Can we edit? Can we edit that out? Yeah, right. You have to bring that up. No, we got to go back. Hey, it's not we're, like the first person thinking that out. <laughs> We're only interested in people who are who yeah. are interested in making uh, legit parts for legit things yeah. like like yeah. trains. Yeah, <laughs> I, that, I, that... I, I personally filter those those people out. So I, I'm the John McClain. I don't even let them Very in the door. Good. How about Very that? Very good. Very good. Yeah, watch out for the catering. Well, um, uh, it's always the catering. <laughs> um, and and I really, I want to talk for multiple minutes about this one scene where he ejects out of a C-130. And, and there's a guy in front of the door shooting like uh, a magazine into the door and then nothing happens. Then he injects out of the plane, he's parachuting and nobody shoots at him <laughs> and they don't even, the, and then they're like, <laughs> forget it, let's not even get him. And then they just leave. <laughs> yeah. It's like when, uh, you know, Superman, the guy would shoot at Superman and then throw the gun at him and Superman ducks. You know, what, what's up yeah. with that? <laughs> But and so for Jennifer's sake, I mean, this is happening in Pittsburgh. Is that something that's very interesting for you as a as a company to have something like that happen uh, close to your operations? Oh well, yeah, of course. So that's probably why we were so um, early on in in 
adopting this. You know, we are a Pittsburgh-based company. Our headquarters is on the North Shore in Pittsburgh, and the airport's, you know, 20, 30 minutes away from downtown there. And so, yeah, that, that matters. And we actually just recently moved our headquarters there as a merged company just last year uh, from just outside of Pittsburgh. So yeah, that matters for sure. But it's also that it's more so we are a global company too. So we could pick anywhere to put our, our additive expansion site. And we picked Pittsburgh and specifically neighborhood 91 because of the problem that it's solving around the supply chain for AM and uh, you know, just making AM more economically feasible for us as a company. And so first of all, what are you guys exactly going to do at Neighborhood 91? So we're going to start off um, relatively small and grow from there, but we're going to start off with just one metal machine at first and, and hopefully add some more soon. But um, And we'll be making mostly transit parts that we will uh, ship to Europe for uh, some of our customers over there and some freight parts as well. Now, when she says small, I mean, I think this is the yeah, uh, perspective too, which is, you know, it's on a, on a one of the largest powder bed machines and the part that she's making for most people that have been in additive is, is quite large. So I think this is also a good discussion point because this, these are just small parts to her, but you know, I think yeah, for people yeah. who've been involved in additive, it's kind of like, oh, these are pretty significant. Yeah. True. Sorry, I was not meaning to downplay what. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> That's what, 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 did, what was Stephanie saying the other time? She was like talking about stuff like a, it was like a 200 kilo part or something. And I was like, oh, yeah. what? <laughs> you know, there's no small parts, it's just small people. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm trying to be like, wait a minute, that would cost a week. That, that will build in a week. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we do have those parts. We just finished up a nice you know, four day build <laughs> just this oh, morning. Wow. So we do that. We fill build boxes to the max. But uh, we're going to start with, you know, some lightweight uh, parts, some, some of the transit parts I mentioned before. But uh, we've got like large families of, of parts within the transit sector that are ripe for additive. They just fit really well within the, the constraints of additive, within the benefits of additive is really what I want to say there. So uh, we'll start there. And um, I, they are big parts and they'll mostly be aluminum at first. And um, we're hoping to also grow the capacity there in the next few years with some freight capacity as well. But I also have a facility in Grove City, which is packed right now. So Grove City, Pennsylvania is about an hour north of Pittsburgh. So we're, we're well, we're serving what we need to out of there. And then this will be our growth and more or less like our production site. Okay. So you're saying that they're, you know, really changing the, the needle on the, on the, the cost of additive. And John mentioned Argon and people are like, what Argon, huh? That can't be that expensive. Um, so, so what are they doing that is going to really change stuff for you? Well, I mean, Argon is expensive. <laughs> Don't skip over <laughs> that. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the gas consumption uh, equation, I don't know what John may say 60% or so. Or powder production? No, I okay. Sorry, on on parts production, you always have these percentages in your head. Oh yeah, so yeah, it's certainly a driver in, in powder production. But uh, you know, well, your 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 machine does use uh, quite a lot more argon uh, just because of the size of it. So you know, it is it is a significant percent. Yeah, and then also there's we're going to be tied into the microgrid, so there's capital expense that is not 
um, going to be necessary because like UPS as generators, etc. But then also there's just like the, the idea of simplifying the downstream processes and bringing that together in the ecosystem. So I think that's really where you get the efficiencies and the, the cost good guys is, is out of that. So if right now today we're, you know, shipping a part a few hundred miles at least, uh, each time that we, because we only print, we use vendor suppliers for a lot of the downstream processes. And so I think just simplifying that will be where we recognize a lot of our good guys and, um, and also being located right next to a place that we can easily ship anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And a lot of rail shipping at that. Because <laughs> 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 I hear them every day. But I, yeah. I, just to tack onto that, though, mm-hmm. I think the... Um, you know, when you talk about argon, I mean, when you recycle argon, you, it's it's a huge reduction in the cost of, like, once you generate argon, you generally only need to sweeten it with about 5% of new argon. And and so we're talking about drastic reductions in argon costs and being on site. And so, you know, every little bit helps in additive. And uh, so the printers, I, I forget what the actual percentage of, of operating time, you know, and cost is associated with the argon. But, um, you know, mm-hmm. if you start tacking it on and, and you take out, well, in titanium production, it's 60% of the cost of making the powders in argon. If I drop that to 20%, that also drops the cost of the powder which, you know, then I'm dropping the cost of operating the printer and the powder, and then I'm dropping the cost of operating the heat treatment that goes with it. So, you know, it's a pervasive uh, cost reduction. And yeah, yeah that, that's, my, that's my plug. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but do you want then, so you're gonna make powder at this place? Because that was a logical thing. When I saw you using powder, I think, to, in my opinion, argon is not the main cost component I would be looking at if I'm looking at the printing process. I'd be looking much more at powder, for example. Is that, is that something that you're also, so the, yeah. the argon made me think that you wanted to have a, a you know, some kind of gas atom, atomization uh, That's site correct. or something. Yeah. So we just signed an LOI a letter of intent with a uh, powder producer uh, who, who wants to be on site, you know, making powder by the end of next year. And so that, that works well with the timing of our campus and the argon recapture facility. And, you know, it's going to be a, uh, a discriminator for them. And, mm-hmm. and so it, it absolutely was part of the strategy from day one. When we, when we looked at what we had uh, at our disposal, it wasn't, wasn't like, hey, if we just have 200 acres, people are going to show up because it's Pittsburgh and they like the Steelers. Uh, you know, it's like <laughs> we actually need to do some investment. In, in this campus that's gonna make a difference. You know, we're solving a supply chain problem, but now we have the ability of solving, you know, this this argon problem with it. And it's not limited to argon, that's just the, the first cab off the rank, as you'd say. And, uh, you know, we have the microgrid, you know, which is a cost avoidance for suppliers. They don't, for manufacturers, they don't have to have a, a, a spare generator. They don't need a, an uninterruptible power supply. Um, and it's a sustainable campus on top of it. It's burning natural gas, which you know sits underneath the airport. Uh, so you know it's got a, a bunch of interesting. <laughs> There's natural gas it. underneath the airport as well. <laughs> okay. There is all of what all of Pennsylvania has. Uh, it's you know sits on a bunch of natural gas. You're gonna make titanium powder above it. Okay. <laughs> I don't see how this could go wrong at all. <laughs> 
Well, we have very good friends in the, in, in the security. This is all, you know, this is, well, Pennsylvania is home to 40% of uh, powder production in North America. So th this is a known thing here. And, mm -hmm. and so, uh, you know, being able to make, uh, power, let's say reactive metals is, is, is the most difficult uh, for mm -hmm. a variety of reasons. And then, and then you kind of cascade down into the nickel, you know, kind of super alloys and then, and then into the steels, but all of whom, you know, use argon. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, we're, we don't care what powder people make on the site. Uh, they will be compliant to Homeland Security. So uh, well, that yeah. kind of ticks the security box. And, and believe me, those, those requirements are, you know, there for all the right reasons, you know, for mm -hmm. not just the creation of, of, a, of a futuristic movie. So if we're looking at this, 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 this uh, is there also going to be like a sharing of information amongst all these different companies? And how are you going to do that? Because that, that to me is always a bit of a problem because in additive, if we learn things, we tend to also internalize them or consider them proprietary and we don't really tend to share a lot john you can say your vision and then i'll maybe reality check it we'll see <laughs> <laughs> clearly it's it's a difficult point uh however you know we do share information with the supply chain when it's not on the same 200 acre campus and so one would imagine with with the mes uh softwares that are out there today uh they they share certain information so that you know where your part is at any point in time and, and where it's what it's gone through i think that being on a campus that could share the same um it uh let's 5g connection you know you, you may be able to do some things there uh that that you can't do over a very global you know distributed network well, you know, these are one of the things that we want to that we want to tease out as we move forward. So if we have a, a 5G bubble over uh, neighborhood 91, that might afford us some uh, security that you can't get otherwise, or at least a safe place to start. But we need the software providers to come along and and come with that journey and provide a value proposition to it. So I think once we have the campus, um, where it ultimately goes is has yet to be written um, what we do know though is with the advancements and 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 i'll go i'll go there with artificial intelligence machine learning uh but also with 5g and, and all these you know what umbrella advanced manufacturing pieces i'm not smart enough to to kind of paint that picture but but i am smart enough to paint a picture that says it's going to enable us to do things before other people get to do it simply because we're neighbors uh, we're, we're on the same 200 acre campus. I can walk across the street and talk to my downstream vendor. So if I can do that, maybe I can lean out some of the processes. Uh, I don't envision a world where we're, you know, coming together and doing yoga and singing, uh, songs at lunch, <laughs> but, uh, but I do think that uh, we can share enough information, uh, to, to, do some more uh, the next evolution of lean manufacturing. Yeah. What would you have to say about that, John? Well, first of all, I did request yoga at lunch, John. So yeah, very good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and no singing. No singing. We can we can skip the singing. Uh, I so the way that I see it is is actually maybe not uh, 
all that um, different than John, I, I guess what I love about the Neighborhood 91 concept is we all bring to the party what we do best and we don't try to do everything. So in that case, you know, if I do develop some awesome new IP around uh, you know, the printing of transit parts or rail parts, it's not necessarily something I need to share. However, like it is something that the, the neighbors could benefit from. And, and likewise, if the machining vendor, the heat treat supplier or powder producer, if they do produce IP around things, it's, it's not necessarily um, that we need to share it all, but that we benefit from that with each other. So I, I think, you know, we've got this aspect of hopefully we do enable an e easier processes because we're neighbors, but then hopefully we also just continue to improve in what we do well. And um, we benefit from each other's improvements more than necessarily having like a bunch of learning sessions. It's going to be do what you do best and the whole neighborhood wins that way. Okay. And, and I good. just want to build on that. So we don't necessarily have to build the 5G bubble to benefit in this regard. And so Jen and I have talked about this. So, you know, machining an additive part, we still machine additive parts. I mean, let's be honest. So we haven't eliminated machining, but the art of machining an additive part is different than machining a part from a block. So, you know, I think what Jen's highlighting here is she doesn't want to be the expert in that category. We're going to bring in a company that, that does this. So when they do stuff for Jen and they do stuff for, you know, for the part production of an Airbus A350, for example, both companies are getting the benefit of that, you know, and this is kind of workforce pulling. It's the know-how that goes and does it. And, it. and if they get better at it, it gets cheaper. So, you know, I think that is, that is really where you know this comes together and and it makes sense so it's not like we have to incentivize people to go off and do this this is just what they do currently it sounds like a really exciting uh, thing guys it sounds like a really exciting initiative i think yeah there are like stephanie's mga thing is is, is proven that people can share information additive industries have this uh added lab thing we've got a bunch of uh very secretive companies to work together on on, on things. I think it's standards and uh, things like testing as well and part certification and, and destructive testing and testing and stuff is also something we could work on. So, and yeah, I think it just, there is, there is a lot of value in being like a place where you can share things and work together and do seminars and stuff. So I think it's a really, really exciting initiative. Well, and we, we've talked to Stephanie and we, we want to be collaborators with MGA and, and IM hub. And, and so they're, they're not competitive. Uh, so we, you know, I, I believe that there's huge space, you know, to work together. Absolutely. And, and as a company, we're also part of MGA and are very involved in what Stephanie's doing there. And I'm really excited about it. We've had to be a part a little bit because of the pandemic, but typically we're at those, those meetings as well. So there's a lot of exciting stuff going on there and there are forums for collaboration. I don't know that necessarily making production parts out of a site is that, but there's, there's methods, there's testing, there's new material breakthroughs, that kind of thing that will certainly um, just from having a broader network benefit from each other. Excellent. Excellent. So thank you very much, uh, Jennifer. And thank you very much, John. 
Uh, and thank you. And this was another episode of the 3D Pod. My name is Joris Peels, and I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope to you know have have you listen to us again uh, the next time. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.